0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more.
0: This week, the heir to the throne at Apple looks a lot like... Tim Cook, maybe less like Steve Jobs.
1: Yeah. And shark tourism, not new. And yet the recent increase in shark sightings has entrepreneurs eager for a piece of the action.
0: Plus an in-depth profile of Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. It's this week's cover story.
1: In the finance section this week, a takeover of this section, it's all about interest rates, low rates, and negative rates, which are spreading around the world.
0: It's a really important story. Mm -hmm. We were talking about it before we came on air. Everyone needs to read this because it affects all of us, really, and ultimately our savings accounts. John Anger joins us from London. It's a really nice piece, too, because it's words and pictures, something everybody (laughs) can understand. So what was the inspiration here, John?
2: Well this is a problem that started a few years ago but in the last six months or so it's really ratcheted up as there's signs that the global economy is slowing and that European central bank and the global central banks are all going in the same direction and that's going to be to cut rates and to introduce more monetary easing.
1: John, explain why people, because I think some people are like, why would I go and buy some sovereign debt where I'm not going to necessarily make money? I'm going to lose money. I'm actually paying the country. Mm. You know, why would I do it? Explain why investors, though, do still do it.
2: Well there's several reasons. Uh, Primarily the bonds which it affects at the moment, although this is rapidly changing, is the most safe and most liquid bonds. So if you're protecting your portfolios then typically these are the bonds you want to own. And if there's risks such as a China-US trade war or a potential conflict with Iran in the Persian Gulf then these are the assets you want to be holding. And so if people are flocking in to buy, then you can still make a profit there because the price will increase. Uh, And furthermore, I mean you can't get that much money just putting it in a bank at the moment. Uh, So as long as you're getting slightly more than, say, the European Central Bank's minus 0.4% rate, then there's still some scope for uh, appreciation there. So that might be a few of the reasons why you want to hold these assets.
0: And so play this out for us a little bit, because you mentioned Germany. You've got some people, including uh, the incoming uh, head of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, former head of the IMF. You know, she's talking about some potential solutions for Germany, but also on the horizon looming is everybody could become the next Japan. Tell us about that.
2: Well that's right. So at the moment, Europe, there's a lot of people saying that Europe's going in the way of, the, of Japan. And what do they mean by this? Well, they mean like a world of permanently low inflation. Uh, they mean ageing populations. Uh, and this is something we are starting to see in Europe. So if you've got an ageing population, you've got less working age people which put money into pension pots, for example. And it means that pension funds are really struggling to make money there. Um, so in, in Germany and in Japan, Like, this is is a a real sort of problem. And Christine Lagarde, who's the next European Central Bank president, uh, she's got a background from the International Monetary Fund. So she might come to the market with other solutions, uh, such as fiscal spending, which could prove to be really important, because central banks are are bearing a load of the strain at the moment, and it's not really working. Well, and one
0: of the things you point out in the Japan example that, honestly, I felt like a light bulb went off in my head Mm -hmm. is this idea that an aging population is ultimately going to spend less and therefore not drive prices up because I feel like we're constantly struggling with this notion of how are we not seeing more inflation? That's really one of
2: the underlying drivers here. Absolutely. I mean, no matter what central banks have done over the last few years, inflation is nowhere to be seen. The European Central Bank has pumped in 2.6 trillion euros into the region's economy. And yet inflation expectations over the next decade or so are still barely half of what the European Central Bank wants it to be. And so for a lot of people, these problems are more structural. They are about things like the ageing population, as you said, but also things like technological changes, the Amazon effect, the fact that prices are really being pushed down across the board.
1: Right. There's not that pressure on central banks to raise rates to stem inflation. The other thing that I think is interesting, and we talked about it this week, uh, Jason, on our daily radio show, that it's not just sovereign debt we're talking about, corporate debt we're also seeing with negative yields.
2: That's right. I mean, uh, if you're getting negative 0.4 percent holding uh, German bonds, for example, then like investors still have demands that you as a portfolio manager have to meet. So how are you going to get to these returns? Well, you have to go either further out the yield curve, you have to be buying up long-dated debt. Austria just sold a bond uh, that doesn't mature for another 100 years. And the interest on that, 1%. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, or so you, you take riskier bets, you move into corporate bonds. We've now got eight junk bonds which uh, now have yields of less than zero. Which, I mean, if you think about it, a junk investment, rating, 0% yield to hold one of those, it takes a brave person to do so. Right.
0: Yeah, that's the sort of thing that would make anybody, if you went back to the 1980s especially, that would make your head explode. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about the United States. We have not experienced... Gotten close. Uh, we've gotten close, but we haven't gotten quite to negative rates. What's the outlook?
2: Well, the United States is one of very few countries which doesn't have uh, negative yielding bonds at the moment. And that's primarily because the Federal Reserve has been one of the few that has actually managed to hike interest rates from the financial crisis, so they have got more room. But if uh, the global economy goes goes the way that many people expect it to, then the Federal Reserve is going to have to join this train and start cutting rates. And with Treasuries also seen as being one of the safest assets to own, then for many people the only way that yields are going to go to is down. So we could see the U.S. join Japan and Germany in having negative yields at some point in the future. Not now, but soon for sure.
0: That's John Ainger from London, and he really sets the scene so nicely and helped me understand at least why negative rates are a thing and what it ultimately means for the global economy.
1: In the finance section, a rates takeover, looking at what rates maybe- Rates <laughs> takeover.
0: <laughs> it
1: is, because it's it maybe is the new normal. Right.
0: Well, it's and it's, feels a, that way. it's a super important story. We've been talking a lot mm-hmm. about this this week. Uh, Liz McCormick is here with us. She joined us earlier in the week on our yeah. radio show. We really got a chance to dig in because this is one of these stories, Liz, that I feel like for people like me- I get what's going on, having read your story. Tell us what has happened in this low-rate world.
3: Well, it, we, as we were saying earlier, it's kind of like saying, where did we come from? So we know we went through the financial crisis, the Fed cut rates about zero, and then things started turning around. They started Lifting interest rates, tightening policy. And we thought, oh, interest rates are going higher. We're getting more economic growth. And, you know, people were getting warning, back to normal. Yeah, back to normal where people were warning, you know, hey, be be abreast. The 10-year Treasury note, the benchmark to the world, could go up to, say, 5%. It was around, at one point, it was like 1% in change. But here we are 10 years later. We've had the longest recovery on record, albeit very slow, 10 year treasury yields at uh, 2%. The Fed only tightened up to like this two and a quarter, two and a half range. And now, as you, we were chatting too, the Fed is about to reverse course and right. ease. So we didn't get quite enough growth. We got a, consistent but not super strong. We got a bit after the tax cuts, but it didn't last that long. We haven't had a heck of a lot of inflation, right? Right. So there's not a lot of risk in the bond market. And the bond market is kind of a gauge on, hey, where's the economy going? Where's inflation going? And no one sees it going too far too fast, you know? And- That's why the Fed is cutting again.
0: And just as a reminder, I mean, interest rates, they essentially inform so much of – so many of the decisions we make as people, as companies – As governments, ultimately, that's where everybody's looking to understand what I'm going to do next and how healthy the economy is ultimately.
3: Right, exactly. And it's the kind of thing that everybody knows stocks. It's kind of the flashy thing. But interest rates, like if you just look at them, they are very informative if you think about what it's telling you, because to come up with an interest rate, it's based on where's economic growth going? Where might inflation be? Which you and I, we all care about growth, which is Mm -hmm. factors in jobs. Do we all have a job? Inflation, how much does it cost when we go to the food store? All those gauges of the whole economy are embedded in interest rates because, you know, if you think about a little bit wonky bond math, interest rates start with just kind of a base rate. The the Fed's rate is kind of like the basis. And then you add bits from there, right? Is there risk? risk? Maybe we would add a little more risk if we're holding this money with the Treasury Department, say, for 10 years. But it is really a true gauge in the stock market sometimes and uh, usually jumps off that a little bit, like earnings. Companies do better when right. it's easier to get cheap money, right? right. And right. finance things, and earnings can be better, and so it filters through to everything, even though it's not the kind of flashy thing like, you know, where's the Dow Jones? Well, you know?
1: f- well, think about things like, yeah, banks, right, in terms of what they loan, you know, the rates that they loan at, or the money that they pay on deposits, and I think about hedge fund guys, and like, everybody searching for yield. Right. It has kind of upended our investment world.
3: Yeah, it's funny, like, um, we, we put in the Story about the show Billions, which I love, in which my daughter is make the, references yeah. all the time. <laughs> all the my
2: time.
3: daughter's in business school. She loves that. Um, but <laughs> what we said in the story is even these high flyers have been struggling. You know, they always had their two and 20 fee structure. They've had to change the fee structure and kind of entice clients because they've been losing a lot of money because people are saying, well, maybe I'll just stick my money in a stock fund, which has done super well, and I don't have as much risk. So even the hedge fund flashy TV guys, in reality, have had to struggle in the low-rate world. And it's interesting, after the story, you always get some feedback, you're always hoping it's okay, but people said, wow, this is what I'm living through. Even county treasurers emailed me to say, gosh, I remember when I could make 4% at least on my cash. And now it's such a struggle. So think about all the pension
1: funds, right? That have to find some kind of stable investment vehicle. And yet they're not able to do it in kind of our traditional, you know, bonds and so on and so forth because they're not yielding. Right. Right. Because you
0: have people, and I believe you talk about this in the story, you know, you have people who are responsible for paying out pensions, who are having to take their assumptions down because they just cannot make the money that they were used to making.
3: Right. They're trying to rein in expectations and say, you know, hey, listen, we maybe used to make seven percent on this money. We're going to make a little less than that. We're going to make six percent and change. Or, But they've been doing that for a while. And um some of the biggest pension funds like John Gittleson, who covers mm-hmm. pensions for us in L.A., helped me out and you know, CalPERS has had to do that yeah. and said, you know, let's let's kind of tone it in. Because in the old days, even on a 30-year bond, you you know, I think we ran the numbers. It was average since the 70s at like 6.5%. Now it's about 2.5%. So they like long-term investments because they have long-term liabilities. All these retirees for years, but they haven't had a lot of, you know, pickup in yield from there. Stock prices after the crisis, which everyone kind of did, like maybe we should cut back. And so the stock went to records, record, right? <laughs> So people yeah. lost a little on that. So it's been tough for them, for sure, yeah.
1: The people that you talk to in doing this story and then the feedback, do they expect
3: it to continue? Well, yeah. I mean, um, Dan Ivinson at PIMCO, at the, you know, we had him at the kind of tail end of the story, said, Liz, by all means, rates can go lower. And what I thought was interesting, because mm-hmm. we were talking, like I know you've talked to some of the other reporters around the globe about all the, the $13 trillion about a negative yielding debt. And he was saying, I could see a scenario, you know, X, Y and Z, where even government debt yields in the U.S. could go negative, which right. would be pretty mind bending. We mm-hmm. haven't seen. But he said definitely they can yields can go lower, especially with the Fed doing what they're doing. And he said, of course, there's risks. You never know. You know, um, but there's a lot of things that lay out that say this isn't ending now. You well, because
0: as you uh, allude to next week, we're we are. Almost certainly going to get a rate cut, Mm -hmm. which I think if we all go back to our December 2018 selves, that would have seemed insane. Right. And yet here we are.
3: Right. I know. It, it's amazing. And, you know, like to be fair to the Fed, because some people say, oh, why can't the Fed normalize? Some people want yield and you know, I've got right. some emails like that. We need yield. But they have to be aware of what's going on globally. Right. You know, the issues with the trade war created some headwinds even for companies who are mentioning it. What's the bottom line here? Well, I would say the bottom line is. Rates are not going higher anytime soon. And I, I, we're not here to tell people how to invest. But just right. be aware that the interest rate environment is probably going to remain kind of subdued, as we mentioned, that Fed is easing and there's not a lot of risk. We don't have – and the Fed is even struggling to get inflation. They can't kind of figure out yeah. why we have right. almost record low unemployment. We're not Thinking getting Thinking about inflation. changing metrics or maybe yes, they're not the right ones tools, to follow. So right. I think that would be the message that – This is not likely to change anytime soon.
1: That's Liz Capo-McCormick. She follows the FX and bond markets for us here at Bloomberg News. And her story really takes a look at this decade of low interest rates and how it has really changed everything for hedge fund managers, pension funds, retirees, so much.
0: It's a good step back and also a really good reminder that this, while it seems a bit arcane, maybe a little bit Mm -hmm. obscure, it affects all of us down to... What we're paying for a house, Correct. how we're buying a car, student loans, all of it.
1: Shark tourism not new, and yet the recent increase in shark sightings has entrepreneurs eager for a piece of the action.
0: The underlying uh, music here is doo 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 John Heckinger joins us from two Boston. Jaws. You did a little shark tourism for this story. Tell us about what's going on there on the Cape.
4: Well, I did. T- I took a tour. I took a, a, a two and a half hour tour off of Chatham, <laughs> Massachusetts, and within ten minutes, I saw my first shark and in the time and the whole time I was there we saw a dozen sharks and we saw them really up close and personal what was that like, John oh my god it was it was thrilling and unsettling (laughs) Um, uh, you know we had we had one that uh, felt like it almost jumped on the boat it kind of changed direction splashed us all and perhaps the most memorable moment we saw a shark uh, kill a gray seal, eat it, and and sort of bring it toward our boat. I mean, it was it was gory, and um,
0: there are definitely a lot of sharks out there. Wow. And people are paying up for this. I mean, this is this is big business. Talk about how much it costs. Well, this this cruise um, cost
4: twenty five hundred dollars for a maximum of five people. It's from this luxurious Chatham Bars Inn, and also the Great White. Uh, um, Atlantic Conservancy, which is trying to preserve sharks. So it's both a sort of philanthropic uh, enterprise and it's also, it's also a business. Um, and that's just part of a whole bunch of ways that uh, stores are trying to capitalize on sharks. They're selling T-shirts that say, you know, uh, seals taste like chicken or nice to eat you, um, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Um, There's a real balance here, though, because certainly people are afraid of sharks, and they should be.
1: Well, that's what I'm thinking. And and you put this in your story, right? So here it is, shark tourism. We're not talking about Australia. We're talking about Cape Cod. You know, um, it is on the rise. But you've got to tread delicately here, right? Because you do have an increase in shark sightings. It seems to be an increase in shark bites. And really, unfortunately, you know, some folks um, who've lost their lives as a result of um, shark accidents. So, yeah, how are the entrepreneurs kind of dealing with this and the business is dealing with this?
4: Well, I think carefully. Um, you know, last year, uh, last September, there was the first sh- uh, fatality in Massachusetts since, since the 1930s. And that kind of did change the tone. It, it, it made things, uh, you know, the stakes got, got pretty high. And the Cape is putting up these very frightening signs saying, you know, warning sharks, huge pictures of great whites. And they're trying to keep people out of the water. So on the one hand, they're trying to keep people safe. On the other hand, um, at this point, at least, you know, sharks and seals are protected. There's really nothing um, for now that they can do. So I think they're trying to make the most of it. You know, a lot of people go to the Cape where the, the water is pretty cold, and mm-hmm. they don't go in the water. So you know, they're not going to be at risk. So they might as well uh, spend some time buying a T-shirt or going to the Chatham <laughs> a shark center and learning about sharks. Uh, certainly the kids I saw were,
0: were delighted uh, to see more about the fish. And so, John, why now? I mean, it does feel like there's this increase in sightings, or that certainly was what I, one of the things I took away uh, from your story. Why this sort of upsurge? Well,
4: it's a conservation success story. There have been um, decades of protections from, for seals and for sharks and it's really paying off. What we're seeing now is the environment as maybe it would have been when the colonial settlers came to Massachusetts. And so this is this is sort of, you know, it's it's the ocean is, is a wild place full of wild animals and they're back. So basically we have a situation where the sharks are have been replenished, the seals are everywhere and you know you're going to have more interactions and the question is whether people can negotiate them and then also you know make a little money on the side it looks like
1: well and you know you talk about you put a number on it uh, about 300 million dollars a year in terms of shark tourism you know what kind of economic or business impact have we seen as a result of increased sightings off the cape
4: well i spoke with the uh, chief executive officer of the chamber of commerce which is Rightly concerned about this, and they did a, a focus group, or several nine focus groups, in fact, and asked people who regularly go to the Cape, will this affect your trips? And they said that most people were aware of the sharks, but most people weren't changing their plans. Um, now, of course, that they're not 100% sure that that's the case, you know, going forward. Um, and a lot of this will depend on whether people can coexist with the sharks and there aren't more fatalities or, or maulings.
0: Right, because we did have a situation, I'm thinking a couple of years back down in the Gulf of Mexico, where mm-hmm. you had sharks coming much closer into the water. The water is much warmer down there, so you have people not only wading around, but going much deeper and deeper. And it, it did have at least a temporary, I believe, yeah. economic effect there. So I, I guess it remains to be seen, right? Right.
4: That's true. I mean, these sharks are close. Um, you know, all of the sharks that I saw were within sight of the beach. No
0: kidding. Um, wow. So you weren't so, going out you know, very far.
4: No, not at all. I mean, these were, you know, the shark attack I saw was uh, about, um, I'd say, 200 yards from the from the coast. Oof. So the main thing uh, that visitors should take away is that, If you see a lot of seals swimming in the water, you should get out because there are probably sharks that are looking to have, have a meal.
0: And that's John Heckinger. I think he may have at one point been thinking, wait, why did I want to do this story? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. But it's really cool, right? He went on a boat. He actually saw some great whites up close. But I love that this story is also in the economic section of the magazine, right? This story has economic implications.
0: Leave it to Business Week. <laughs> Everything is about money.
1: From the moment she arrived in Washington, Elizabeth Warren has tried to push a liberal takeover of the Democratic Party. It is this week's U.S. cover story.
0: Josh Green, one of our all time favorites, yes. one of the most most important and I think most watched political journalists around spend some time with Senator Warren mm-hmm. as she has come in and out now very much in the heat of the Democratic primary debate, as it were, coming up on that next onstage event in the next week or so. Josh is here with us in New York City.
5: Uh so Elizabeth Warren, she's a comer. She's back. Yeah. <laughs> the hottest candidate probably right now in the Democratic field. She's kind of been resurrected from her earlier woes. Uh, you know, if you if you if you read poll numbers, if you look, you know, talk to insiders in Iowa, places like that, she's the candidate that people are talking about and you see it in her fundraising metrics and her volunteers and in her steady rise through the polls.
1: Well you spend some time with her. So the persona that we see, whether it's on camera and so on and so forth, versus spending some time with her one on one. What did you see?
5: She's you know, she knows what she believes in and and that is the same on camera as off camera or on the record as off the record. She's she's a little blunter and harsher in her in her descriptions, but the basic direction of, of what she's talking about is still the same. Her theory all along has been that, you know, the U.S. economy has essentially been captured and corrupted by big business, by Wall Street, uh, you know, now by the Trump administration and Republicans. And the only thing that's going to get Democrats elected uh, is not the kind of a toast incrementalism of a Warren, or sorry, of an Obama or a Clinton, but big, bold, radical change. That's what she's introduced to the Democratic debate. And really, she has shaped the race more than any other candidate. If you want to be competitive in the Democratic field, Mm-hmm. You have to be coming out with these big plans, which all the candidates are, whether it's Medicare for all right. or some version of a Green New Deal or abolishing the filibuster, or the electoral college tax. or a wealth tax. But these are ideas that no top tier candidate would have dared to introduce a cycle ago, two cycles ago. And it just shows you how much
0: things have changed. And I want to talk about some of those proposals. But first, one of the really interesting things that you do here is you take us all the way back to her beginnings. Mm-hmm. And you know better than anyone so much of a. Campaign certainly a presidential campaign is about someone's narrative. She's got a pretty compelling one, especially when
5: you go all the way back. Well, so she does. There are two narratives about Elizabeth Warren. There's the narrative that she chooses to present about you know the the, the lower middle class Oklahoma schoolgirl who kind of succeeded and triumphed, became Harvard professor and senator. All that is true. The story I try and tell about Warren is a different one. It's her political education and how she emerged as a serious Washington power player, an insider as much as an outsider. And I submit in the piece that that's been the key to her success. So I uh, wrote a book about Congress 10 years ago, and I used to write a column for the Boston Globe. So I've known Warren and talked to her on and off the record going back to when she was still on the TARP oversight board, uh, Mm. terrorizing Tim Mm -hmm. Geithner and senior figures in the Obama administration administration. After the financial crisis. After the financial right? crisis. And that was
0: really the moment where she came into herself. In a lot of ways, it felt like, yeah. at least nationally, right? Yeah.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she had been, you know, a, a fairly renowned uh, bankruptcy professor, law professor at Harvard Law School, not much of a public figure. But, uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in the piece is that Warren has always had a gift for communicating. It was true when she was a law professor. It got her noticed by Dr. Phil, you know, who had her on a guest before anybody had ever heard of her. That brought her to the attention of top Democrats, uh, who began bringing her in to testify because she's such a compelling person. Of course, that, la- that landed her the oversight gig at, t- at the, uh, the the bank bailout. And that is the moment when you really see her developing her signature style of staging these big, aggressive, high-profile confrontations with senior figures, almost always men, and somehow getting the best of them in a way that galvanizes kind of grassroots liberal support. That is what kind of built up her independent base, you know, got her elected U.S. senator. It's really been the key to her revival as a presidential candidate after early stumbles.
1: So when she came to Washington, outsider? I would
5: say she came to Washington as an outsider I- and an insider. I okay. mean, by the time she got to Washington, she was someone who had actually spent a fair bit of time here trying to lobby senators, congressmen, administration officials against a bankruptcy bill that was uh, you know, in and out of congressional focus for about 10 years. She lost that fight ultimately. Right. But she told me What she learned essentially was how inner sanctum Washington power really works, how you build coalitions on the outside, how you kind of twist and spin and and wheedle with senators on the inside to eventually get your way. And I think the great insight that Warren had that people still don't fully grasp was that something fundamental in our politics changed about 10 years ago. And The way to advance, the way to shape the national debate isn't to build a long legislative Legislative record and earn a reputation for probity. It's to have a big, loud, messy public fight that goes all over cable news and social media and gets people whipped up. And that is what Warren has been able to do consistently time and time again, whether it's on versions or bank bailouts or Medicare for all or impeaching Donald Trump. She is very good at setting the terms of the debate, and we're watching that happen right now in the Democratic primaries. Well, and
0: not to oversimplify it and you certainly will keep us honest here that's essentially what got Donald Trump
5: elected president. You know, it really is. It was funny. I was I, so. So Warren had me at one point in, during this profile over to her apartment in uh, or condominium kind of in Washington D.C., which is very nice. She made me homemade le, uh, mango lemonade, and I sort which of you really I, liked. Which I it was it was good. <laughs> um, and I sort of pushed this line. You know, aren't you really kind of the Democrats' version of Trump? You know, you're breaking the rules. You're not being held back by party orthodoxy. You're you're you know offending all sorts of yeah. people with the radical nature of your plans. She absolutely resisted that line at every step. But I think it's true. She really has. What she's understood is that if you limit yourself to the conventions of how Democrats and Republicans traditionally run for office, you're not going to stand out in this new media environment. I think Warren understands that better than Any Democratic, except maybe Alexandria Mm Ocasio-Cortez, who's also internalized these new rules. Well, this
1: whole idea, and you put this in your story, Josh, about go big or go bold, you know, go big, go Mm. bold kind of thing. Um, And that's where she seems to be going. But is there a little bit of a balance? Because you don't want to necessarily alienate certain people within the Democratic Party at the same Mm. time. Um, And then there's also this kind of roll into this, this mission of we just want to beat Trump.
5: Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, Warren, Warren, if you want to talk about her insider rise, one of the rules, she didn't talk about this, but one of the rules she learned early on was that you can criticize people, you can make a big public spectacle, but if you want to advance inside the caucus, inside the Democratic establishment, you don't publicly criticize leaders. And for all her outspokenness, Warren doesn't criticize Pelosi. She doesn't criticize Chuck Schumer. Um, What's different about this race, I think, is that if you talk to a Nancy Pelosi, she is very nervous about Democrats being perceived as too extreme, too radical. She just wants Mm -hmm. to get to November 2020 and have a referendum on Trump. Warren has made the complete opposite decision, which is that Democrats aren't going to show up unless they have something exciting to vote for. And that right now is the central strategic divide in the Democratic Party. A lot of Democrats, not just Pelosi, are very uncomfortable with what Warren is doing, because if you look at some of her plans—abolishing uh, private health insurance, uh, you know, eliminating the filibuster—these are things that a lot of Americans are not on board yet. If you look at polls, decriminalizing illegal border crossings, uh, Democrats collectively. Uh, being pushed by Warren or venturing out into territory uh, that no Democrat has been willing to go to before. Maybe that turns out uh, to be an inspired move on Warren's part and and Democrats sweep into power. Or maybe they blow the best chance they'll ever have to to get donald trump out of office talk to us about 2016
0: and warren's role there the decisions that she made and candidly the shadow of hillary clinton that hangs over her decision making and
5: the 2020 this was the most fascinating part about the piece to me is you know warren came up through washington both as an insider who worked within the establishment and as an outsider who who got attention in the ways that we've talked about but when it came to about 2015, 2016, she had to make a decision. There was a draft Warren campaign for president. She could have run. She had a following, but she also had a, a challenger in Hillary Clinton, who just about everybody thought was going to win the nomination and probably the presidency. And so Warren had to make a decision do I run? Or do I try and advance my liberal agenda through Clinton? Ultimately, she chose to do it through Clinton. uh, And that meant that she didn't endorse Bernie Sanders. And so it it, it made her uh, a sort of reviled figure among a lot of people on the left who'd Mm. who'd formerly been fans. But Warren was so canny – In her use of power that not only did she manage to influence Clinton, she was almost chosen as Clinton's VP. And one of the some of the news I break in this piece, I got a senior Clinton campaign official to leak me a memo uh, written by by one of them saying we ought to choose Warren for president. She gives us the best bet to get elected for vice president, for vice president. Warren didn't know about this. So I, I, I you know, showed her the memo and I said, would you have accepted it if Hillary offered you the VP job? She said, yes. Wow. So it, it sort of opens up this whole alternative history of what might have been had Clinton and Warren run on a ticket together Well, talk Trump. about
1: alternative history. Does she regret what she did back in 2016, considering now she can look and see how things played out?
5: She wouldn't answer that question to me, but talking to one of her close friends, uh, I was told absolutely she regrets it. If you could put her in a time machine and go back to 2014 and tell her that Donald Trump would be elected on a populist platform, she absolutely would have gotten Mm -hmm. the race. I think there's a good chance she would have won.
1: That's Josh Green, and he really is our go-to person when we want to know about anything that's happening on the political campaign trail. And his story, he sat down, spent a lot of time with Elizabeth Warren to get a feel of what's important to her and how she's going to run her campaign.
0: Well, and what was funny is he happened to be in New York, so we sat down with him. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation, actually didn't end there. We had plenty more from him, and it's part of this week's Bloomberg Extra podcast. You can download it anywhere you get your podcast.
1: So the recent news that Apple's chief design officer, Johnny Ive, will leave the company later this year, got our Mark Gurman, I'm thinking, and a few others about succession plans and the future of Apple.
0: We love catching up with Mark. He's mm-hmm. our Apple guru, and he brings us a name that maybe a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't heard. Jeff Williams, arguably the heir apparent to Tim Cook and if you squint a little bit (laughs) he sort of looks a lot like Tim Cook at least in terms of his background not a Steve Jobs type to say the least. Mark joins us from Los Angeles so take us inside succession planning there at Apple Mark.
6: Yeah, thank you for having me. So, at these major tech companies, and of course Apple included, there's really two types of succession planning. There's what happens if something happens to the CEO tomorrow replacement, and then there's the long-term replacement, who succeeds the CEO if he retires at a normal retirement age, or a little bit before or after. Jeff Williams, he's about three years younger than Tim Cook, and he fits the mold pretty much for both. So, if something were to happen to Tim Cook, everyone we've talked to says that Jeff Williams would be able to slide in to that CEO position without the company really missing a beat. In terms of long-term succession planning, it really depends how much longer Tim Cook is going to be around. If Tim Cook is going to remain the CEO of Apple for the next maybe five to seven years and then retire at a normal retirement age, he is almost 60. Jeff Williams would be able to slide in for a few years. So he is definitely the heir apparent. He is very likely to be the next CEO depending on what happens with Tim Cook, not that there's any reason for him to step down in the imminent future, but very much longer long term, 20 years from now, I don't think that person even is at Apple right now or is even a name that anyone has heard of.
1: Well, talk to us a little bit about Mr. Williams, um, Mark. I mean, what kind of person is he? You know, what's been his experience, you know, inside the the company at Apple? the recurring theme
6: is that Jeff is very modest someone called him the most modest Apple executive Uh, some of Apple's higher brass who've been there and you know made income of hundreds of millions of dollars from stock options over the last you know two three decades they drive Bugatti's Lamborghinis Jeff Williams is not a flashy person like that he's he's fairly low-key in meetings he could be very demanding but at other times he could really leverage his lieutenants to do a lot of the you know the barking in those engineering meetings and the unique thing about about him is that he's almost purely an operations person but he does have a little bit of product insight into himself as well and he's really shepherded the Apple watch to market now the Apple watch today if you get the series 4, it's a fine product it's you know perhaps a very very good product the best smartwatch on the market but things were not so clean at launch back in 2014 2015 when they had several production issues with the device but he has and his team has worked out the kinks uh, to be fair but the question rises is, if he's the one who shepherded the Apple Watch to market, is he also the one to shepherd next generation iPhones, HomePods, Apple TVs, iPads, Macs to market as well? And I think the answer has been clearly yes, despite some of the early struggles of the Apple Watch that have gone away.
1: Well, and that's what's interesting with Johnny Ive out, right? Williams has been put in charge of Apple's design group, too.
6: Right, yes, he's absolutely in charge of the design group. It reports up to him, but I think this is more of someone just sort of overseeing it. I don't think he's going to be contributing many industrial design, you know, those forward thinking ideas. One person who worked with him for many years told me that, you know, they think that he was really born to execute other people's ideas, add to them, maybe put a little bit of spice and other new features to them, but he's not one to create that next big new category. He's not the one to dream up the next big new initiative for Apple from a product perspective however to be fair he's actually sort of the brain behind Apple's recent push into health products but again health is extraordinarily important their efforts they're putting there you know are really meaningful to a lot of people but you know truth be told their health integration the Apple watch isn't really the next iPhone whereas if you look at the tenure under Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive that partnership that they had there combined with some you know you know operational acumen from Tim Cook that produced hits like many of the original Macs, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad in a span of fewer than two decades.
0: Well, and that seems to really be the crux of your story and your insights that you provide here, Mark, which is that was, that combination, that was the secret sauce that led Mm -hmm. Apple to become what it is today. So where are they going to get it? I believe you had some other reporting this week about some designers, another designer, maybe the third coming over from Tesla. So they're raiding other other places, but how are they building out that design bench in the absence of Johnny Ive?
6: Yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, Jason, it seems like they have one half of the equation, right? When Steve Jobs was around, it was really sort of a partnership between Steve Jobs and, and, and Johnny Ive, as well as, as Tim Cook. After Steve Jobs died, that really continued because Johnny Ive on that executive team still had the clout of someone who could come up with those ideas while Tim Cook was really executing them. Looking into the, you know, the next phase of Apple, if we indeed, indeed do place Jeff Williams into that CEO slot, who is Jeff Williams number two on the design side, right? So right now the design team has two main leaders. One, her name is Evans Hankey, and she's in charge of the industrial design team, which is basically the look and feel usability feature set of the actual hardware device. Then there's a guy by the name of Alan Dye who oversees the user interface. Now Alan really came into the picture with the Apple Watch when he led the design of the user interface for the operating system on the watch and now he's taken over more user interface elements for the latest versions of the iPhone and the iPad. But someone I spoke to who's a very senior Apple executive who's worked closely with Tim, uh, with Steve Jobs, with Alan, with Evans, you know, indicated that Alan and Evans are actually a step down from Johnny Ive which is not surprising. And that's
0: Mark Gurman, the go-to guy, the Apple guru. Some great anecdotes in that story Mm -hmm. that tell you not only how Apple works, but who this guy is.
1: With cannabis legalization sweeping the country and stigmas about pot smokers fading, employers are finding it getting harder to fire workers for smoking pot.
0: Yes, they are finding that, (laughs) but it's very complicated. And that's definitely what I learned from this story. Rebecca Greenfield is here to tell us about it. So what's going on out there? Because we are, as Carol said, having this moment feels like people are loosening up a little bit, but maybe not so fast.
7: Yeah. Like you said, it's very complicated. We have federal laws and we have state laws and the states all treat it differently. So this was a very fun story to report because I had to make sure I was getting everything right with all the different states. But basically what's happening is States are realizing that it's unfair or maybe wrong or unjust to fire someone if they're using medical marijuana to treat an illness, a legitimate illness, in their off hours. And that's what was happening before. It was completely okay to do that. So more states and more judges are building in more protections for those kinds of cases.
1: So how are they getting around it? Or how are they figuring this out, right? Because we are in a world where it's becoming more legally accepted, both medical and recreational. So how are employers dealing with it?
7: Some employers are getting rid of drug testing altogether. Now, to be clear, there are certain positions that will always be drug tested for. If you're in what they call a safety-sensitive position, so, you know, you use a forklift or something dangerous, they're going to drug test you. But if you're in an office or, you know, you're a sales associate, they're just getting rid of drug tests altogether altogether. Um, and the ones who aren't, they are facing lawsuits if right. they're in states where they these employees have protections. Well, and I think it's
0: important, as it always is in talking about this, to talk about the legal distinction and state to state. As you say, Rebecca, some medical totally cool, and people do that. Recreational is coming more and more to the fore. But some of the cases you talk about here have to do with people using it for legitimate medical reasons and still getting fired, yeah. ultimately. Talk about that.
7: Yeah, the the cases are usually people using medical marijuana and getting fired. That's where most of the protections are. I also think those cases tend to be more sympathetic. Right. And so what's happening is somebody is using medical marijuana in their off hours. Their employer says, you need to take a drug test. They say, I'm, you know, have cancer, and they say, okay, take the drug test, and it comes back positive, they're firing them. Right. Now, certain states are saying you can't do that and putting specific protections in their laws so that medical users specifically are protected.
1: But it's tough, right? Because you have – companies are allowed to drug test, Correct. They're still allowed yeah. by law. So, how do they differentiate, or how do they figure out who's the medical marijuana user? I mean, what kind of documentation maybe are they looking for versus the person who just
7: you know comes to work stoned? Yeah. How do they figure that out? So, in states where medical marijuana is legal, there are usually registries, or you have to get a prescription, or you have okay. to have a card. So, that's one way they're determining that um, you know if the prescription is legitimate or not. The employer can't really have any say in that. But if you are a registered user, um, you're going to have the most protections.
0: Well, you also bring up a really interesting nuance, too, which is this notion of, of course, most companies, and I think most right-thinking people would say, you shouldn't show up to work stoned. You shouldn't show (laughs) up to work messed up in, in any sort of way. But what you're doing on your own time is your own time. And, th- and there is an interesting distinction and debate going on around that, especially as recreational use gets legalized in many states across the country.
7: Yeah, I think most people and most employers feel uncomfortable telling their employees what to do in their off hours. I think what is becomes difficult for employers and employees is that it's really hard to test for when somebody is high. You can test for if they have marijuana in their system Mm -hmm. but it's not a very, you know, it's not like a breathalyzer. Right. Um, And so employers are kind of like, uh, you know, this drug test, am I gonna, they're making calls and they can't necessarily do that. And then they get into these sticky legal situations. So yeah, I really think it comes down to, interestingly, the accuracy of the drug tests.
1: Talk to us about a couple of different states. You talk about one case that happened in Massachusetts recently that showed kind of a way around uh, the drug testing law. Talk to us a little bit about that.
7: Yeah. So basically, there's states that have specific protections for medical users. So that's somewhere like Connecticut, for example. Um, It says you can't fire somebody or, you know, it says you can't discriminate against a medical marijuana user. Then there are states where medical marijuana is legal and there aren't specific protections. And so there was this one case in Massachusetts that said, we're going to try to prove that you still can't fire someone under state law without the specific protection. So they made this argument that um, it was disability discrimination, basically, Mm. under state Law mm-hmm. and um, they, a judge ended up saying, "Like, yeah, you can, you can sue for that." And so that case opened up that avenue for people in Massachusetts to sue under disability discrimination. It is yeah. a
0: reminder, just going back to the top of how complicated this is at yeah. a time when, and you know this well from your reporting, Rebecca. This green as it were economy, this cannabis economy, and even figuring in CBD and all these different things. You look at what's happening in Canada. I mean, this is just another place where it's not as straightforward as many would have you believe. And even some of the investor hype uh, may be getting a bit overdone for just these reasons that we don't really know the way forward yet.
7: Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that recreational users just have such fewer protections. Yeah. Um, and with recreational use becoming you know, more and more OK and legalized and destigmatized, I think people not, might not realize that the workplace still has some right. You, know, you still could get fired.
1: I do also wonder and you know it's funny what you just said Jason it's it's spot on like this whole tortured relationship we have you know as things become more legalized but we still haven't kind of figured out some of the nuances so maybe we can take some cues from Nevada right where medical marijuana has been legalized for a long time and they've recently legalized also recreational marijuana can we learn from like what they are doing that kind of sets the stage for what we how we need to treat it
7: for workers yeah so interestingly enough the earliest adopters didn't think about this. So Colorado, for example, doesn't have any protections for medical marijuana users in the workplace. And I think the states that are legalizing now are realizing that workers need some sort of protections. And so Nevada passed, I would think, a law that does more than most states. Um, They said you can't basically use a drug test that tests positive for marijuana as the basis to fire someone. And that doesn't Say they it could be for medical or recreational mm. use. Um, and New York City also just passed a similar law. Maine had a law like that, and then it got repealed. So I think the world is still trying to figure out how to deal with it. But the states that are just legalizing now, I think, have learned from the mistakes of other states.
1: Does it make any sense for workers to come in and say when they're
7: applying for a job, hey, I've got a medical condition.
1: I'm using it. Does that help their no, case? I mean, no. no,
7: it depends where. Yeah. I think if you're in a state that protects you. Yeah, if you're not. No, like we've seen courts not side with those people.
1: That's Rebecca Greenfield. And what I love about this story, it's just a reminder of kind of our tortured and complicated relationship with cannabis.
0: Well, and we talked so much about pot stocks and all mm-hmm. the money that's going there. But Rebecca Greenfield, she's a workplace expert. She really took us inside a different element of the story. It's time for another edition of Business Week Talks. This week, we speak with Chris Nassetta. He's the CEO of Hilton Worldwide.
1: We talked about company growth. We talked about the economy, also the impact of geopolitical tensions on the hotel business.
0: All right. So, Chris, 100 years of Hilton feels notable. Uh, It's also a notable and interesting time in the world. Let's start with today before we work our way uh, back. U.S., China, geopolitical tensions. How's that playing through your business right now?
8: You know, the reality is I talk about it, as you would imagine, a lot. I'm not surprised it's the first question that I'm getting. Um, We're not seeing any dramatic impact on the business. We we came into this year thinking we were going to have a reasonably good year from a same-store growth point of view, that economic growth broadly in in the world and in the U.S. from a GDP point of view would be a little bit lighter than it was last year, but still positive and, and reasonably good. And I think when we finish the year, um, that's what we're gonna have seen. And if I look at sort of the indicators in our business, both advanced indicators, you know, group business, or shorter term indicators in business transient and leisure business, they're all holding up reasonably well. The nice thing about our model is the bulk of our growth is coming from new unit growth rather than same store growth. Mm. So while I'm reasonably optimistic, about the economy broadly, and, and ending the year in a pretty good place. Um, our new unit growth, which is super resilient, is really good. I mean, we're 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 experiencing the largest net unit growth numbers we've ever experienced, and that's seventy-five or eighty percent of our growth. So, and we have tons of visibility into that. So when you when you look at our overall business, given that's such a huge driver of our growth, and we're opening more than a hotel a day in the world. It's phenomenal. Um, yeah. Yeah, we feel we pretty good. Like I think when we finish this year, both because I think broad more broadly the economy in the United States around the world is I we'll be fine and you add our new unit growth numbers to it, we're, we're gonna have we're gonna have a really good year and I just, and we've had a bunch of good years, I suspect we'll have a reasonably good year next year as I well. I want to
1: ask you a bit more about that new unit growth, but I do want to ask you the longer though these trade spats go on, and if we start to see some kind of economic impact, I mean then do you start to get nervous? Yeah,
8: I mean, listen, uh, it would be crazy for me to say we're not watching this very carefully. Of course we are, you know. And I live in Washington, inside the Bellway, So if you think it's bad here, <laughs> try the echo chamber that I live in. Right? It's like then no, nobody talks about anything but trade wars now that Mexico is done. In, in theory, it's all it's all about China. So yeah, I do think. Um, That markets don't like uncertainty, right? And so this provides this and other things going on around the world provide a level of uncertainty that's not healthy for the markets. It's probably not as healthy as you'd like for businesses in terms of longer term decision making. And so We watch it carefully. I'm certainly very hopeful that calmer heads are going to prevail between the sides. Do you hear
1: the echo chamber in Washington saying that something's going to happen, that something will get resolved? Yeah, I mean, I think
8: certainly I was hearing a lot of that prior to, you know, things blowing up, whatever it was, six six or Mm -hmm. eight weeks ago. Um, And what do I know? But I'm definitely hearing a little bit more of that. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons on all sides of this. Um, both the China and the U.S. side, for the, you know, to to get to a resolution, and I think getting you know, getting some of that uncertainty out of the environment will be will be good. Right. Again, I go back to I, I think even with that, call me an optimist. I think we'll be, the economy will be fine this year. I mean, I think it would be better. More certainty will create an environment where people will invest more, hire more, you know, and do things that will. I think be more stimulative to the economy so you know i'm i'm hopeful although i'm not middle of it by a long shot i'm hopeful that um we'll get we'll get to some resolution let's talk a little bit about the competitive landscape you have a lot of brands Mm -hmm.
0: across the the spectrum stayed at Hampton Inn at the lacrosse tournament uh, over the weekend. I love it. I'm, I have a lot of soccer kids. I'm at Hampton's yeah. every, almost every weekend. So there you go. Best,
8: best hotel brand in the world, I think, by customer satisfaction, market share, unit growth. It's right. an amazing brand. Right.
0: So- even with all those brands, competition is fierce and, and competition is coming from places that probably didn't even exist when you took over this brand, you know, not that long ago, 10 years, years ago, 12, 12 years, years ago. ago. Um, so when you think about Airbnb, you think about VRBO, you think about sort of technology as it has found its way into your business. What's been the net
8: effect? Well, here's the thing. Some things are definitely different, you know, in, over the past 12 years, and some things are the same. So when I got here 12 years ago, Airbnb didn't exist, as far as I know. I certainly didn't know what it was. Yeah. I, if you had said Airbnb, I would have sort of given you an odd look, like, right. what What are you talking about? <laughs> I talk about it a lot, as you yeah. would imagine now. Talk about the OTAs. Talk about a lot of other disruptive forces. Um, here's the thing, though, that, that uh, what our customers tell us by their behavior. We, we have the leading market share in the hotel industry. We have an average market share across all of our brands in terms of rate and occupancy of almost 115%. 15% better than on average than, than the competition. Every single one of our brands, all 17, are either category killers, they are co-leading their segment. So there's not a dog in the bunch. And that's Chris Nasetta, the CEO of Hilton Worldwide. I love his story. I love that he
0: took Mm -hmm. us back uh, to how he got into the business. Plunging toilets, literally. Uh, but what he's done with that turnaround at Hilton is pretty remarkable.
1: It certainly is. And now to Pursuits. The opener this week in Pursuits is a story by Hannah Elliott about women motorcycle clubs. They're on the rise. We're going to hear more about that Super cool. in just a moment. Super cool. But mm-hmm. first up,
0: Chris Rouser, and we're going to start with the rest of the section. Spectacular, spectacular. Moulin Rouge. <laughs> it's one of yes. Carol Master's favorite things
1: coming <laughs> yes. to Broadway.
0: Is
9: that true? It's one of your favorite things? I've been
1: talking about it a lot this week, but we'll tell you later. Okay. (laughs) Um, So
9: I just saw the show, and it is a sensation. It is a humongous production. It feels wildly expensive, not only because they have the rights to 70s pop songs, so it's just like song after song after song, but also the sets and the lights and the costumes are just like super lush.
1: Well, tell us about that, right? Because there's so many like over-the-top elements of Moulin Rouge, and they really kind of work them in.
9: Yeah, so we wanted to focus on the sets because we know that this is what a big part of what everyone's going to be talking about. The whole theater, the Al Hirschfeld Theater, feels like you're in the Moulin Rouge. There's and gold, like in every inch of it, they have the uh, the red windmill kind of tipping into the audience on one side, and then the elephant from the movie is sort of tipping in on the other side. And there's just lights and uh, laser cut steel hearts, like in every corner of the theater.
0: So let's remind people: this is not easy to pull off because it's based on a Bozeman so movie.
1: This was not the Disney this show. This is not Mulan. the Disney <laughs> show Mulan, which
0: that's a whole other issue, very unrelated. Uh, so Bozeman. Basler- 2001. I mean, a spectacular movie in many ways. So many visual effects. Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, if I remember uh, correctly. I mean – a a visual feast. How do you pull that off in a theater? So the movie was very overwhelming
9: and it took people oftentimes it took people like a couple of times to see it and get it and be like okay I've got this vibe. And so Derek McLean, the set designer was trying to evoke that feeling of very like rushed editing and sort of the frantic energy of the film with a set which is not that easy. So what he did was he created all these different layers like uh, layers and layers of heart to heart is sort of a motif that's in the film a lot. Um, And then like embedded lights in the stage all over so the stage the lights are constantly moving and it actually has that same sort of frantic energy to it which is which is actually really what is really hard to reproduce and it it really has that feeling of the movie which is amazing
1: you mentioned the windmill and the elephant I mean they're actually up in a balcony aren't they? yeah they, could, they didn't have room on the stage to do it
9: yeah so if there's A fair amount of seats in the theater that are kind of limited view because there's so much stuff like sticking in. So I was sitting off to the side and, um, and like the the windmills kind of like teetering over me in the audience. But yeah, it feels, um, it it feels very
0: full, the theater. All right. Elsewhere in Pursuits, talking about elevating your daily grind. That (laughs) is. Maybe not for everyone. I mean, Carol Masser, maybe, because she On likes it. her coffee a certain way. I haven't ordered way. it yet, but, uh, you know. This is a $1,400 uh, cold brew Contraption? Yeah. So <laughs> this is what we call a specialty item.
9: Uh, we, in pursuit, sometimes That's we focus kind of on, <laughs> on things that are for people who like their uh, products and experiences a very certain way. And if you like cold brew, which, you know, there's a lot of like canned and bottled cold brews available on yeah. the market. But if you want to make it on your own, uh, the technology for doing that is basically you stick some coffee grinds in a jar and you leave it overnight. Uh, but this product, the V60, actually um is, is sounds sort like of a, a car yeah it's a faster way of doing it and it's basically a three foot tall contraption it looks kind of like a grandfather clock mm. uh, and you put water in the top and there's a pendulum that swings around and drips it over the grinds uh, and it, it makes your coffee actually pretty quickly as quickly as a half an hour.
1: I think about my aunt in Texas she used to make sun tea right and put like a bunch of things a bunch yeah. of tea bags in a jar. darling <laughs> go give me sun- that sun tea <laughs> outside <laughs> Dude, that's exactly what she would do. What's interesting is I've started to see these pop up in like coffee shops. And I've seen them on a table and they're just, they look like science experiments. Yeah.
0: You're more likely to
9: see it in a shop where it's kind of a visually fun element, but some people have it in their house. No, it's not. Uh, You know, three feet tall. Like if you're not a tall person, you got to put it on the floor. (laughs) Otherwise you can't reach the top. What does it cost? It costs $1,400. All
1: right. But there's cheaper versions, right?
9: Yeah. You can get, I mean, there's competitors that are a little bit. Yeah. There's, there's more, you can use kind of
0: more standard products, but they take a lot longer. All right, tell us briefly about The Critic this week. Talk about a book, My Friend Anna, The True Story of a Fake Heiress. This is quite compelling.
9: Yeah, you remember a couple of years ago, there were these stories, it was primarily in New York Magazine, uh, about this fake Russian socialite, Anna Delvey, who conned a bunch of people, including right. banks, um, into believing that she was she had a lot of money and she was going to start a foundation. Uh, and she eventually got busted. And this book, called My Friend Anna, is by a woman, Rachel Williams, who uh, was one of her victims. And she actually, uh, she put up like $60,000 on her credit card, uh, never got paid back for this trip that they took together. Together and Rachel kind of tells the story of what happened to her and how it unfolded. And she actually helped uh, the feds trap Anna Delvey in the end. Yeah. I mean, the
1: story is really about Rachel Williams, right? Yeah. And how she kind of got pulled in.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you know, the, she Anna was pretty good at picking her marks. She she picked young people who were sort of impressed by what she said, and yeah. um, and, and Rachel was one of those people. <sighs> very, very good. This will uh,
1: soon be on Netflix or Hulu. It or is. Amazon. It is. Shonda
9: Rhimes is yeah. doing it for Netflix. Yeah. yeah.
1: Love coming, it.
0: Coming to a streaming
9: service um, near you.
1: We talk about lots of, ki- uh, lots of uh, kinds of races at uh, Bloomberg. I think about political races, arms races. Uh, in Pursuits this week, it's an underarms race.
8: Oh, God. Yes. So <laughs> you didn't know where I was going. I did, did not didn't. know where <laughs> you were I going. We all
9: got a little
1: nervous. <laughs>
9: so we, um, so we test summer, out. It's It's
1: hot. I'm just we, saying. We
9: test out <laughs> products at Pursuits a lot. Sometimes you guys help us test things out. Um, and I think the most unpopular thing that we tested was natural deodorant. You should
1: ask me. I love Love this so idea.
9: deodorants that don't use aluminum, uh, which some people think has a connection to breast cancer, although the breast, uh, the cancer association is not so sure about it. Yeah. Um, but just if you want more of a natural product, and we tried a lot of them, and a lot of them do not work, but we found five that do. <laughs> so um, what was it? you're
1: sitting next to a colleague who's testing it, and, and you're, you're like, like, Yeah, it ain't working. Work yeah. yeah. No,
9: exactly. <laughs> actually, yeah. Um, I tried one that did not work, and then I tried one called Type A, which did work. And a lot of them have sort of arrowroot powder. or Different kinds of powder, which basically dry you out a little bit. They don't block sweat, but they kind of meld with your
0: body, with your natural scent. Yeah. And sometimes, can, can we commit to each other though that if we go this route, we're only going to use the ones on this list and not the ones that didn't work? Deal. All right.
8: Deal.
0: Chris I Rouser. It. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.
1: <laughs> The opener in this week's Pursuit section, women-only motorcycle groups, they are apparently a thing, a growing thing.
0: A big thing. Yeah. And Hannah Elliott, we turn to her for all things motorized, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll take moving. Uh, Exactly. <laughs> moving, moving fast. She's here with us in New York City. So take us there. I mean, this is such an interesting phenomenon at a time – as you point out in your story, where riding motorcycles kind of tailing off a little bit, yeah, but not with this group.
10: It's really great. It's like this beautiful bright spot in an industry that is having a bit of a crisis of conscience. Not sure where they're going from here, and you know, as the big guys, the motorcycles are figuring themselves out. This spot of women riders is growing and vibrant. And one of the things that we've seen are these groups of women motorcycle riders that are banding together, um, forming clubs, and I use that term very loosely, not motorcycle clubs, clubs like you think of Hell's Angels, but riding groups, and they'll do campouts and festivals, and it's really a thing. If you follow them on social media, it's great.
1: What's cool is, I think somewhere in your story you talk about men and women ride differently. So
10: talk to us <laughs> about that, right? We are different, yeah, apparently. So a lot at of the different risk levels. of generalization, and again, this is just a generalization. A lot of these women I speak with say, look, we like riding with women because we don't want to die, and we don't have anything to prove. Yeah. Somehow it's easy easier for a lot of women to ride with other women because they don't have to prove anything. It's very much about going at your own pace, with your own riding style, doing your own thing with like-minded people who happen to be women, too. Well,
0: and as you point out, a lot of the big companies, Harley included, facing a bit of an existential crisis, to say the least. We heard a lot about that, actually, this Mm -hmm. week with their earnings and whatnot they obviously are paying close attention to this. How are they yeah. getting in the game?
10: Yeah, it's really interesting. There's, um, the, probably the most well-known group is a group called Babes Rideout, which is a riding group, but they have camp outs throughout the year across the country. They have concerts. Um, it's really, uh, affirming and inspirational. Harley Davidson is one of the supporters of Babes Rideout. So they give, you know, um, money of course, and then support, um, at the events. And, uh, Harley's realized that this is, a, this is a potential growth market for them. Um, it's a way they can reach new riders, younger riders, um, minorities, everything that they need because Harley's core rider is a 50-year-old white guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, well, and this is what's interesting too. You talk about in terms of women riders.
10: Some are. I mean, it's quite a range. Young, yes. to old. Yes. And the ladies who I spoke with who have, who ride in these groups who go to Babes Ride Out and Babes in the Dirt and Wild Gypsy Tour. Love the names. I love the name. The yeah, Dream Roll. I mean, there's so the Litas, Um They. It's literally twenty year old single girls riding with sixty and seventy year old retirees. Um, one Babes Ride Out had a ninety six year old lady join them and she had first ridden across the country 75 years ago on her harley so it's really a wide span um it's just a really feel-good thing that these ladies do that's hannah elliott
0: and that'll wrap up bloomberg business week's weekend podcast thank you so much for joining us I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Bloomberg Week Radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And you can get this week's edition of the magazine that is on newsstands now.
0: We'll be back right here next week at
5: the same time.
3: This is Bloomberg.